Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is the Reverend Ben DeHart. Ben is the Associate Rector at Calvary St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City. Ben grew up in Robbinsville, New Jersey, graduated from Grove City College, and received his MDiv in 2012. He's worked previously as an Episcopal Chaplain at Carnegie Mellon University, and as an associate priest at St. Thomas Memorial Episcopal Church in Oakmont, Pennsylvania. I give you Ben DeHart. Ben, back to back. A double shot of you. Thanks for doing this. Getting uh, this recorded a little early. So when I'm in the throes of vacation Bible school, I won't have to worry about recording this lectionary passage, uh, this lectionary podcast. And we are doing our first reading here is a, is a joyful reading from <laughs> Amos here, right? Indeed. Indeed, very warm, cozy, not at all. Yeah, this uh, it's interesting because Israel here, I feel like this would be like not a terrible thing if you're like, behold, here's a basket of summer fruit, right? Yeah, but it's like bad. a bait and switch. It's like he's coming in, hey, I've got this ripe, fresh fruit for you, but actually you're ripe for judgment. So yeah, we see, I mean, again, like Amos is focusing on them trampling the needy bringing the ruin to the poor of the land. And what I I find really so intense about this passage is that God says, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass them by. So this is, God is saying, it's not, there's there's no asterisks here. It's, it's over. We're through. Um, Obviously what Israel is doing is terrible. But I think as an, you know, a, a Christian, a reader of the Old Testament, what's helpful about this passage for me is other times in Scripture when God seems to say there is no way forward or uh, eternal judgment or this and that. Oftentimes when God says, this is the end and I will never pass them by again, uh, his mercy seems to to be not far off. Um, so I feel like this is reading the old Testament can be really helpful for new Testament believers. And some of the passages where it just is like, Oh, is this the end? Like there's no, uh, way forward, no way past judgment. And the Lord has proven time and time again, that maybe the end is a penultimate end, or at least maybe that's my hope. <laughs> yeah. When I was reading this passage, I, I, I opened up, Robert Jensen's systematic theology. Hmm. And he talks about in this one section in the first volume, he talks about um, his view. He says, the consequence of deciding that the incarnation is neither an emergency measure nor construable apart from sin, that precisely the gospel of forgiveness is not an afterthought or of course, extreme <laughs> usual assumptions about the content of God's eternal will about his relation to sin and evil and about the relationship between creature and death must be rethought. And then he says, no, but there is this strain, you know, Luther, you know, God created us just in order to redeem us or the exultant of the Easter vigil. Oh, fortunate sin that occasions such great redemption. 
And then he says this, so also a mystery of suffering of an interplay between created regulars and evil must belong to the plot of God's history with us and to the character of its crisis and fulfillment. One of the last prophets of Israel spoke in God's first person, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. I will refine them as one refined silver. Then I will say, these are my people, and they will say, the Lord is our God. Also, such terrible prophecy must somehow become true and good in the last fulfillment, and the identity must, of God must somehow be told also by it. I, I mean, I think that's profound. It's strong medicine, uh, but that this sort of, that Israel, somehow God's allowing Israel to be unmerciful mm. so that it could be judged mercilessly to then be delivered into deeper mercy. Uh, you know, this is you, Paul saying, you know, God, what if God constrained all to disobedience to have mercy on all kind of thing? I mean, I mm. think that, that without passages like this passage, Amos, that stuff is, is seems thin. Yeah. What I find interesting too, is that obviously this is kind of pointing to the coming exile uh, whether Amos did that or, or the people who put together the final form of Amos. But at the very end, he talks about the time is surely coming, says the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro seeking the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. So to Amos, the, the worst possible thing is that this the word of the Lord is withheld from God's people, which is, uh, I mean, maybe we're doing some like Christian readings of scripture that are unwarranted to the uh, you know, original meaning of the text. But what does that mean for the word made flesh and just just the, the sense of the withholding of God's word from his people is a chief part of judgment. Um, and that word, obviously, to Christians being that the word of the gospel, Jesus Christ himself, uh, this being part of that, that judgment that, as you said, opens the way forward for, for a new and greater experience of mercy. I, I'm not even sure I fully understand what Jensen's doing there, but I, I love it, <laughs> the little that I get. Yeah, no, I mean, it's this sort of like, it's the whole lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, you know, where, where, where God is our redeemer before he's our creator. And, mm. and, you know, you think of this, that I was thinking of that where you're saying the word will be withheld. Like you, I mean, some of the saddest word in scripture is in Genesis, right? They heard and they hid that, that what happens in, in Adam and Eve's rebellion is all of a sudden the presence of God becomes something they hide from, they hear and they hide, and then mm -hmm. they live east of Eden. And then so the presence of God is something that, and then what's interesting, you know, they eat and their eyes, they know they're naked, right? And then they hear and they hide. And then on the road to Emmaus, Jesus breaks bread with them and they eat and their eyes are opened. You know, this, this, this probably male and female disciple, uh, a lot of scholars think. And it's just the, the beauty of that, like, undoing the this east of eden and yeah that word i mean it's interesting because the word doesn't deliver us from suffering but it, it gives us hope and meaning in the suffering and so that that which sort of makes that that's the horror of that right that mm. that and that there's no sort of sense in the suffering yeah it's passages like this that i find very helpful maybe this is my personality but um i i, I think a lot of us suspect that we are 
going to be found wanting or that we're not living up to uh, what we should be living up to. We're not doing all that we can do. And passages like this are like that mirror (laughs) that confirm our worst fears that, yes, in fact, you are, you have been found wanting. (laughs) Um, And yet the reason why that's good news is I've suspected that's true all along. And yet judgment, not even in the Old Testament, has the final word. The same God uh, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this God is for us, even when he has to judge us. Yeah, yeah. The the no, God says the no because of the greater yes, he said. Like that the, mm. that that no is contained within within the the yes that you know of God with us. Mm. Yeah, I like that the, the redemption before the foundations of the world. That encapsulates the no. We'll meet again. Don't know where, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again. Some sunny day. On to Colossians 1, Christ Jesus, uh, 15 through 20, Christ Jesus is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. Here we have this sort of super high Christological portrait that he's the one in whom all things hold together uh, and he could have the supremacy. Uh, he's in him is the fullness of God. And then after this sort of Christological reflection, he goes to, and you were once estranged. And now he's reconciled you in his fleshly body through his death uh, to present you, you know, new and holy to, to God. And so this is this, um, and then Paul talks about his own suffering, that, that this is, that he re- can actually rejoice in sufferings for the sake of, of, of the people, just as Christ was able to bear affliction for the people. So it's a really fascinating um, sort of high Christological reflection, right? That then sort of bleeds into, you know, it's the person of Christ and the work of Christ. Yeah. I'm always, I'm always kind of confused and interested by that third paragraph. I am now rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. And I I heard a preacher one time, this is years ago, and I don't remember who it, who it was, but he essentially said that that sentence is almost heresy. It's borderline heresy, but the reason why it's not is because Paul is saying that what is lacking in Christ's afflictions is its message being proclaimed, is him proclaimed. It's not any lacking in the cross that would go against uh, pretty much all that <laughs> of Paul's program, but essentially what is lacking is that ordinary people like you and me need to proclaim him to the people who don't know him. Uh, So here in Colossians, it starts off with the high Christology. It leads right into that like blessed gospel with uh, making peace through the blood of his cross. And then right into now go tell that proclaim him everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then what's interesting is it goes to this, from this Christology to the, to the sort of redemption of these people and Paul sort of suffering for 
the proclamation. And then that's so interesting to them. God chose, you know, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's so interesting that this is, this is the mystery revealed that humanity is being knit together in the body of Christ, and that this is sort of the mystery of the ages, that all, through all the Jebusites and Canaanites, and actually there are Canaanites living in the, uh, they found the DNA of the Canaanites recently. There's like D- Canaanite DNA or something in Palestine, in Israel. But, uh, you know, all these ites and all these, you know, all the, all the stories of the golden ages of China and India and Rome, all the, this is all part of the mystery that unfolds in the middle of of time, we get a glimpse of the end of time when you know every people of every tongue, tribe, and nation uh, mm-hmm. gather around the throne of the Lamb. So it's a, it's it's fascinating that that's sort of the climactic thing. This mystery is revealed. Yeah, this is one of those texts too, where you just kind of want to be able to tell your people read this thing slowly. Right? Just how incredible this is. Paul really believes that this Jesus, this person, is the image of the invisible God, uh, the firstborn of the dead. Uh, everything was created through him. I mean, this is such a high view of Jesus. Again, someone he'd heard about, someone who he hadn't met firsthand until after Jesus' resurrection. But I mean, yeah, the proclamation of the gospel is on one level, the, the mystery has been revealed. And though that mystery has been revealed, it's still kind of mysterious or, or, or awe-inspiring, maybe the better word. Yeah. And Leslie Newbigin has this great book. The title is the open secret. Hmm. And I think that's really, yeah, it is a great sort of phrase to get it. What seems like Paul's getting here, that there's open secret in the middle of history, you know, and the other thing I think is interesting about this passage, just when you're talking about heresy and Christology, you can, you can have a high view of the person of Christ and a low view of the work of Christ. Hmm. But you can't have a, a high view of the work of Christ and a low view of the person. It's a lot harder, you know. Like that, generally, they, but you know, because it's interesting. You do have people that have that have bold statements about Jesus being the eternal Son or something, and yet seem to preach as if everything's still up to us. Uh, but here, Paul has a high view of the person and the work that they're inseparable. Hundred percent. Yeah, which is which is which is key. Speaking of Jesus, we go on to Luke 10, and Jesus is his was with his disciples. They're on their way, and they enter this village, and Martha and Mary are there. And Mary sits at the Lord's feet and listens to what he's saying, but Martha's distracted, and she's like, Jesus, come on. Like, tell my slacker sister, you know, aren't you? <laughs> come on! Uh, and, and, and Jesus commends Mary and, and says, no, she's actually done the right thing. So this, how, have you ever heard this passage, like preach like a Myers-Briggs or something like a personality test? Oh, like preach two different personalities or, or, or like, well, there's Martha's and there's Mary's. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I hate that stuff. I mean, I've heard so, I mean, I've lived with this text probably my whole life and kind of what we were talking about last week. A bunch of people seem to be pretty bored of this text. So they'll say, they'll emphasize 
you know what, we've always been way too hard on the Marthas of this world. And so the whole sermon will be essentially justifying Martha and miss the whole thrust of this text. And then there are, are books like Having a Merry Heart in a Martha World, which, I don't know, maybe go overboard. But essentially, if we're just like letting this text have its way with us, um, I am so, I'm from New York City. I work way too much. I'm type A. I see a lot of Martha in me. And so I love it when people try to justify Martha. But this text is making very clear that Martha and all of her tasks and all of these tasks, they're good things, right? She is being hospitable to Jesus and his disciples. Uh, She's worried about the food being put in front of them, whatever. Uh, But Jesus says these good things have gotten in the way of the one thing needful. And that's me. (laughs) Um, And I think we just kind of have to like, let that sit. Don't justify Martha with this sermon. Mary, who's sitting at the feet of Jesus, who I think scholars rightly so say, this is probably a big deal. A woman sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's a disciple of Jesus in a world where women just were not allowed that role. But she realizes the one thing needful The kingdom of God is right in front of her. And she says, forget all the things that I'm supposed to be doing. I'm all in. Yeah. And I think it's wrong to think that like picture Mary as like a daydreamer. And this is just, she's just looking for rabbis to sit and, 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 and and hear philosophy and religion. Like she would have had all the, you know, in the ancient Near East to sort of patriarchal culture, all of the gravitational pull would have been to do what Martha's doing. It's the woman's place. It's your hospitality. Yeah. Like it's not as though it's her personality. Like it, it, like the text doesn't psychologize Mary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that basically she, she receives not achieve, you know, she, she is passive and, and that's the better part. Like the passivity, the, the, the listening, the, the being in the presence of Jesus, which is, yeah, I, I think it, it's counter to, you know, it's interesting because like Martha is a great parable just for religion, right? And, and Karl Barth says all religion, including and especially Christian religion is unbelief. He says like religion is what we do in the absence of God's revelation. It, it, it's what we do when, when, when the spirit's not present, when the, when the revelation's not there, it's our, it's, it's the building of the tower of Babel. Like we'll make a name for ourselves, that kind of thing. And, and, and rather than receive the name, right, it's to achieve it. And so like that, that sort of human desire to make transcendent significance through our activity somehow is that, uh, yeah, I mean, that's just, yeah, that's rebuked here. <laughs> and I just think about, and I'll just speak for me as a preacher who emphasizes grace, emphasizes the one-way love of Christ for suffering sinners. I preach grace, not works. Uh, But how much of how I I work, how much of how my church runs, how much of how I live is essentially me really trying to, to justify myself. It's the opposite of the kind of Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, the feet of the kingdom of God, the one thing needful. Uh, I am (laughs) usually busy, distracted, and these are all good things. Uh, I think that's the best part of this text. It's not, Martha isn't doing bad things. She's not even doing unnecessary things. She's doing good things and she's missing it. Uh, And this text doesn't say she's trying to justify herself. 
I'm reading that into it a little bit, but I think a lot for a lot of us, for a lot of, for those of us with Martha hearts in this world, a lot of the times it's a way for us to try to earn love or to, uh, I guess, earn what we're supposed to be doing. And yet here we are rebuked and said, Mary, the slacker, (laughs) maybe she's not really a slacker, but the one we perceive as a slacker. She sees the one thing needful and she just receives. She doesn't work yeah. for it. She just receives. Yeah. I think of that scene in Chariots of Fire when Eric Little is talking to his sister and she's like, why, why are you, aren't you going to China? Why are you, you know, God's made you for a purpose. He said, you know, yeah, God has made me for a purpose for China, but he also made me fast. He's like, and when I run, you know, I feel his his pleasure. And then later, Harold Abrams is asked why he runs. And he says, because when that gun goes off, I know I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. And it's two different ways to run, you know, feeling God's pleasure or justifying your existence. And, and that's, you know, it will either sort of be justified or self-justified. It's almost, it's kind of an inevitable split, uh, you know, split path before us, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really don't know what to add other than that. Just, you know, stop trying to justify yourself and receive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The the one thing it's interesting too, because you hear this like phrase, you know, praise if everything depends on God and act is like everything depends on you. No, like, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, that, that, that there's, that's, that's, that's sort of maddeningly uh, inconsistent, you know. And that, my uh, Anglo-Catholic pastoral theology professor says that's actually a complete mistranslation it's actually the opposite. It's you're supposed to work as if everything depends on God and pray as if everything depends on you, which I think is actually pretty interesting. Uh, yeah. And I think it's like pray, do both. Like in some sense, like you think of the serenity prayer, right? Like God, right. You know, what is it? Give me the uh, grace to accept the things I can't change, the the courage to change to tr- the courage to change what I can and the wisdom and the difference. I feel like the, the things you can't change are the majority, right? Like, I mean, we have, we control so little in this world. Right. And, and I feel like that is the beginning of wisdom. Like realizing like that we have very little control and we, we act differently. I think it's not that we don't act, but we act differently when we realize how little control we have. Yeah. And it seems like Martha is being invited to hand over that control. Yeah. To Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. Ben, thanks and blessings to you and to uh, our listeners. And I hope that uh, they can sit before Jesus on the Lord's Day. Thanks for having me again. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review and subscribe or pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Ben for coming on the podcast and thanks again to you for listening. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.